Some of you may have had an experience where uh, you have a friend or a family member who hasn't been in contact with you for a pretty long time. They've kind of ditched you. They don't call you. Um, They don't ever want to hang out. They don't come to your special events. But then something tragic happens in their life, and after everyone else has failed them, and all their friends have left them, and their family members don't want anything to do with them, now they come to you. How does that make you feel? Is it really hard to not be like, oh, now? Right now you want to be buddies? Now that I'm the only one that can do anything for you? And you feel a little taken advantage of? The good news of the passage this morning is that God is not like that. Some of you, your story would be when you came to Christ, you came to Christ because some life pressure forced you to come to Christ. Or maybe you've been a Christian for a long time, you've been kind of straying, and you've not really been coming to church, and you've not really been involved in church, and something has happened in your life, some shipwreck. It may be a physical pain, it might be some other kind of stress, something where you don't see the other side of it, and medical doctors can't give you an answer, and your psychologist can't give you an answer, and your parents can't help you with this one, your big brother can't bail you out of this one, and so you come to church because you're going, I don't know where else to go. And the good news is we don't serve a God that goes, you should have thought of me first. We serve a God that's going to let you in on a little secret. I put that there to bring you. I allowed that stress to happen in your life to press you like that prodigal son. He's finally in the pit with the pigs and he's got nothing to eat. And then now the light bulb comes on. Now that he's got no money. He already left his father. He left his family. He left the farm squandered all his money, and he's sitting in the pit. Now he comes home. What does the father do? Go, no, 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 no. None of this now I'm coming back now that I don't have anything stuff. Pay back everything you spent, and then we'll talk. Not the response. So maybe you have a life pressure that is ailing you, that is hurting you, that is grieving you, and you feel like you need to come to Jesus, come. He's there. And we're going to see that in the story of a man whose particular stress, his pressure, his shipwreck in life was paralysis. We don't know the exact details. He can't walk, that's for sure. His friends are carrying him around on a mat, a stretcher, so to speak. But we don't know if it was an accident. Was he a promising athlete? Was he a soldier? What did he want to be when he grew up? What dreams were completely shattered when he suddenly became a paralytic? Or was he born that way and grew up as a little kid and sees other kids running around and playing the ancient Judaic version of kickball, you know, and he can't. He just has to watch through the window. We're not sure how he got to where he is, but we know that he's a paralyzed man And he hears about this man, Jesus, who's healing everybody. Fevers and sicknesses, and if it's a demon, it's not like God goes, well, I can heal natural causes, but I can't deal with if it's a demonic cause. He tells the demons to shut up and get out, and then he heals them. He hears about this man, and that pressure makes him desperate. 
for Christ. We're going to see that in Mark chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, slip your hand up. We'll bring you one. It's the second book in the New Testament. Mark chapter 2. Right at the top in the 12, first 12 verses. It says, when he, Jesus, returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. I'll just pause there a second. You remember that Jesus was kind of ousted a little bit. He heals the leper. The leper is supposed to be quiet about it. The leper is not quiet about it. Everybody knows. And Jesus is kind of pushed out into desolate places because he, he can't minister in the crowds. But after some days, it, people find out he's at home. And many, in verse 2, and many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. Remembering that Jesus' ministry is focused on the preaching of the word and not focused on healings. Verse 3, and they came, bringing to him a paralytic, carried by four men. And then when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. When they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. We'll just pause there and just kind of make sure we understand the scenario. This house, it's probably a small house with a flat roof built of thatch and hay and mud and there's staircases on the outside of the house where they can stand up on top of the tiles that are on top of the mud that's on top of the thatch work. And you can hang out up there. So they're not scaling a roof like this one, and it's probably not as steep of a drop. <laughs> but it's still a roof that you can stand on, sit on, rest on. Remember an axe? Peter's up on the roof. He's not like doing a balancing act. It's, that's how the ha houses were. Square, flat, and an outside staircase that goes to the top so you can go up there and enjoy the fresh air instead of being cooped up. So these guys, they look at the door. There's crowds. They can't get in. Standing room only is an understatement. So they take their friend on this mat. You Imagine these four friends holding it by the four corners and get them up the stairs without dropping them. We've all seen the Facebook Funny videos of, you know, EMTs dropping people. They get them up there. They get to this flat part. And he says, and when they made an opening. In other words, it's not like there was a hatch. I mean, they're like removing tiles. This is probably Peter's home. I'm guessing Peter didn't like that. But they're removing tiles and they get to the thatch work and they're removing the mud that's all caked up and dry by this point. And they got to get it wide enough to drop this paralytic through there without hurting him or dropping him. they got to get the mat down in there with all its four corners and maybe some rope or something. So that's got to be a big opening. Um, I know we get easily distracted. I can get distracted when I'm preaching if something happens, if we hear a weird noise. You know, I remember one day there was a bee, and I, I lost like half of you for like, Five minutes, it was, a, it was a bee. I'm like, I can't compete with a bee. Everybody's scared. People are allergic. I was about to just take a time out. 
Imagine roof tiles start dropping in front of us. We're in the middle of the sermon. Pieces of roof and mud and, and thatch work landing on everybody. It's a crowded place. They're probably yelling at them, what are you doing? Maybe Peter's trying to get out to slice his ear off, and he can't because he's, he's pressed in by the crowds. And Jesus is just waiting for it, you know? And so these four friends, dro- not drop, but they, they lower, I think, <laughs> Right? They make an opening and they let down the bed, you would think at a pace in which it doesn't make him more paralyzed. Uh, and then verse 5, and when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. That's, that should strike you as weird. Except for the fact that a lot of us are so familiar with this passage, we kind of know how the story goes. But if you were listening to this passage for the first time, that'd be your first hint that this story isn't really going in the direction that I thought it was going. Their desperation is his paralysis. What they've heard of was that Jesus is healing people. And it doesn't matter if it's a demon or a disease, he can expel it, cast it out. Dude touched a leper. And instead of contracting the leprosy, he extracted it. Jesus is amazing. I heard he's back. He's in Capernaum. He's at Peter's mother-in-law's house or wherever this is. They find him. They press through the crowds. They climb up the stairs. They dig through a roof. They're like, we'll pay the damages, whatever. We don't care. It's desperation, right? And what do they want to hear from Jesus? They want that paralysis removed, like they've heard about the leprosy being removed. They've heard about fevers being lifted. And Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. Now, people sitting around were probably thinking, that's nice. That's cute and all, but we're not here for church, Jesus. We're here so dude can join the softball team. Or whatever he's been desperate for his whole life. We're here so that he can finally get married. And and have kids and and have a life. And go with us fishing. Without having to be carried around everywhere. It's so humiliating. He always has to call four friends. Just get from here to there. Or drag himself along. We wouldn't even know how paralyzed he was. He's going to use his arms. We don't know what's going on. But this extreme desperation. This question that's burning in them. Can this man remove this paralysis? And then they get the answer to the question that they're not asking. At least seemingly. Jesus kind of takes a turn. He sees the obvious. There he is. He's paralyzed. And he wants to talk about sin. He wants to talk about something else. And he doesn't bring it up as a point of discussion. He forgives him of his sins. And so it looks like what Jesus is doing is changing directions from what these men wanted. And it also looks like, not just that he's making an irrelevant pronouncement. In other words, what does this have anything to do with paralysis? Why are you forgiving sins? That's irrelevant. But not only is he making an irrelevant pronouncement, he's making what looks like an irreverent pronouncement. Who are you to tell somebody that their sins are forgiven? You know, today in our culture, it's who are you to tell somebody that they have sins? You jerk. Don't tell somebody they have sins. Well, reverse that. 
but the same indignation, that's what these scribes are feeling surrounded, you know, surrounding Jesus there. And they're going, who are you to just let somebody off the hook? Who, who are you? Without washing, without cleansing, without a ritual, without even knowing their story, or asking what made him paralyzed, or what, what's going on in his heart, you just, you just wave your hand and just proclaim forgiveness? Who can do that? Who has the authority to do that except God? That's what they say in their hearts. Verse 6, now some of the scribes, these are, these are experts in the law, they're in the scripture, they're, they're, they, um, they're the go-to guys in the synagogues. Now some of the scribes are sitting there questioning in their hearts, they didn't say it. Verse 7, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Why is it blasphemy to tell somebody your sins are forgiven? They ask, who can forgive sins but God alone? And they're right. The scribes are not incorrect. The scribes are not wrong. The response to the scribes is not, well, anybody can forgive sins. No. All throughout the Old Testament is clear. God is the one who can forgive trespasses. God is the one who can Forgive iniquity. And the only reason why he does it is because he's abounding in love. But he can do that. He has the power to do that. So the scribes aren't wrong questioning that. Why does he speak like that? If any old person walks into a house and tells somebody, your sins are forgiven. Yeah, that is blasphemy. Because they're right. Who can forgive sins but God alone? I resisted, you might be thankful, the temptation to throw up like a dozen verses up on the screen and walk us through Old Testament passages that make this connection for us. Why scribes would sit there and go, only God could do that. This dude's off his rocker. Why would he say that? It's just obvious when you read the Old Testament. Moses doesn't walk around going, your sins are forgiven, don't worry about it. Unless God was speaking through him as a prophet, God, God is the one who is the source of forgiveness. We'll give you one example. We'll put it on the screen. But you remember when, when David... David is a king, and man, he messes up really bad, right? I mean, this dude, he's, he's strained, pretty hardcore. Uh, he lusts after a woman. He's not off in battle with his people. They're off in battle, and he's just hanging out on the palace rooftop, and he lusts after this woman, and he sends for her, impregnates her, tries to get out of it by making it look like it was the husband that impregnated her, but the husband refused to sleep with her because why should I do that? when all my boys are fighting out in the battle. So David's plan is put Uriah in the front and then pull back and let Uriah get killed. Adultery? A derelict king not doing what he's supposed to be doing with his army? Murder now? Cover-up? Conspiracy? Who did David sin against? Well, he sinned against Bathsheba, taking advantage of her. He sinned against his people. He sinned against his army. He should have been like Uriah going, why should I be out here enjoying my riches? I should be out there. So he sinned against his people. He sinned against Uriah. And then Nathan comes in and he tells him a little parable. And he says, you're the man. You're guilty. And then David repents and writes Psalm 51. And in Psalm 51, it's clear that it's in response to this sin and in verse 4, David says, against you, talking to God, against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. 
Why would David say that? Why would David, who's killed, murdered, committed adultery, lost the baby over it as a consequence, why, 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 would he say, why wouldn't he say in verse 4, I sinned against this person, that person, this person, that person? Well, he did. Those are offenses. But ultimately, in the big picture, the offended party is God. Why? Because God is the one that says those things are sin. And so when we sin, it's God is the primary offended party. And so it's Psalm 51.4, David says very clearly, against you and you only have I sinned. In other words, it's not like God, Uriah, Bathsheba, and a bunch of other people that have been offended. They're, they're part of the picture, but ultimately, at the end of the day, God is the one that has sinned against any time we sin. Therefore, God is the only one that can forgive it. So this is a clear Old Testament truth. The scribes know that. The disciples know that. Jesus knows that. But Jesus reads what they're thinking, and he's making a statement. Jesus knows those scribes are there. Jesus knows how they're going to take what he says, and he says it anyway, and he doesn't say it like, oops, he messed up. There are days when I'm driving out to lunch, and I'll tell my wife, ah, I probably shouldn't have said that. Or, I probably should have cut it short here. I probably... I'm not perfect, but Jesus is not like that. Jesus knew exactly what their reaction was going to be. He knew exactly what the situation was as soon as, as, soon as well, who knows how long before, but he's looking at the roof coming apart. He knows what's going on. And he says it to prompt this thinking in their hearts to make a point. Oh, only God can forgive. I'm glad you asked that question. And then Jesus doesn't take back his forgiveness. So what is Jesus doing? He's making a statement about being God. He says, your sins are forgiven. They question in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? In verse 8, Jesus gives them a riddle. Yay! You like riddles? Here we go. And immediately, Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Man, I wish I had that gift. That would be amazing. Why are you thinking that? I'd lose all friends. Nobody would hang around. You wouldn't hang around a person. They could just read your heart. Why'd you think that? Oh, I didn't. Yes, you did. I'm not hanging out with you anymore. That's scary. Why do you question these things in your hearts? So here's the riddle, verse 9. Which is easier? To say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk. So there's, I mean, I'm calling it a riddle. Because it sounds like it, a question that's hard to answer, right? There's two options, and I'm asking you, which one is the easier of the two? To tell a man, your sins are forgiven, or to tell a man who's paralyzed, get up and walk right now? Well, the scribes are probably wrestling with this in their hearts, and they're thinking to themselves, oh, that's a tough one. Like you read, when you read through John and other places where Jesus gives a difficult question, and they literally go in the corner, sup, 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 and they're trying to figure out how to answer this impossible question. And Jesus is just owning them, right? And his debating skills, and in the truth that he adheres to in the Old Testament Scripture that they had strayed from. Which one is easier? Well, which one's easier to say? Well, if you say someone's sins are forgiven, how do you verify that? 
Maybe they're forgiven. Are they really forgiven? I don't know. It's kind of an invisible thing, forgiveness. It's not like he can open his vest and go, look, forgiveness card, you know. How do you see it? How do you know it? How's it there? It's not as verifiable. But if you tell somebody, get up and walk, if they don't get up and walk, you're a charlatan. You're a fake. You're not who you say you are. Which one's harder to do? Well, I guess you could be a miracle worker used by God. I guess you could, I don't know, fake it somehow. Maybe he wasn't really a paralytic. I don't know. You could try to do something. But to actually forgive sins, you have to be God. So maybe that one's harder. And so you see why it's a riddle. And while they're debating, well, which one's harder than this one? Jesus goes, let me just fix this for you. And I'll do both. He doesn't take back the forgiveness. And then he looks at the man who's a paralytic. Verse 10. And we don't know how much time Jesus gave them to think, but I'm guessing it wasn't very long. Verse 10. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So there's the first part of the riddle. I'm not going to take that back. I'm showing you I do have authority to forgive sins. Then he answers the second half of the riddle. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. How does Jesus solve the riddle for them? He solves the riddle by saying, Both of them are impossible unless you're God. And because I am, I can tell someone your sins are forgiven in the same authority and the same power that I could tell a paralytic get up and walk and then tell them where to go. Go home. I love that. It's not like, get up and do whatever you want. He tells the leper to go to the temple. He tells this guy, go home. So Jesus has the authority to tell someone to get up and walk. That must mean that he also has the authority to forgive sins. While they were sitting there debating which is the hardest, and he resolves it for them. It doesn't matter which you think concluded is the hardest, because I verify both. I can verify that the paralytic can get up and walk by me saying it, because you look with your eyes and you see that he got up and walked. How do I verify that I'm forgiving someone's sins? Because I could do something like that. So Jesus, when that healing ends up verifying both truths, that he has the authority to heal and that he has the authority to forgive sins. And that even though both are impossible for a man, it's not impossible for him. He's communicating something about his nature, his divinity. God only has authority to forgive sins. Jesus is proving the point, I have the authority to forgive sins. This is why it's so mind-boggling when people say, Jesus never claimed to be God. Read it. I love how he kind of disarms us from the view that maybe what Jesus was doing was solving the reason why he was paralyzed. In other words, maybe there was some sin this man committed, and that's why God punished him with paralysis. And God can't fix the paralysis unless he first fixes the sin that causes the paralysis, and maybe that's what he's doing. And I think that's exactly wrong. I don't think there was a particular sin that caused the particular paralysis. 
And I'll give you a couple reasons why. You'll notice what Jesus says to the man in verse 9. He says, your sins are forgiven. If there was a particular thing that he did wrong and it caused the paralysis, he probably would have said, your sin. Which sin? You know the one I'm talking about. The one you committed right before the accident. You know why God made you paralyzed. You did this. Sin. And I'm forgiving you of that sin, singular, so that you can get this paralysis, singular, out of your life. It's a blanket statement. Your sins, which one? All of them. All of them. The ones you did after your paralysis, before your paralysis, in your paralysis, your thoughts, your wicked thoughts, your bent desires. Every time you felt selfish or try to throw a pity party or try to blame God for life, all those sins, man, they're forgiven. So it's not a one-to-one relation between the sin and the sickness. The other reason why we know that is because the reason why he heals the man is given to us. He doesn't heal the man because of a removal of sin. He heals the man in order to show that he has the authority to forgive sin. And this is Jesus' healing ministry. The reason why Jesus went around healing people was not to promise everybody that comes to church is going to have all illnesses and diseases removed. What Jesus was doing was coming on the scene and making a really big claim that the Messiah is here, the Christ is here, the Son of Man is here, the Son of God is here, ushering in the kingdom. Oh yeah, prove it. All right, remember all those passages in Isaiah and Jeremiah that when when God starts unfolding his kingdom, when his kingdom starts finally breaking into our reality, the lame man will be leaping, the barren woman won't be barren, the paralyzed won't be paralyzed. I'm that guy. Exhibit A, heal this person. Exhibit B, cast that demon out. Exhibit C, lift the fever. See? What was he doing in this house? Talking about his healing. Talking about, oh man, I remember this one person. The fever was wretched, man. And I just touched her, man. And it just... He's preaching the word. And what Jesus wants to do through the miracles and through the healings is point people's attention. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Who is this guy who can do that? And he goes, great, I'm glad I have your attention. Let me give you the gospel. So Jesus is not trying to make a correlation between a person's particular sin. His mission is not to fix everybody's diseases that are a result of particular sins. What he's doing is using his healing miracle to point their attention to his authority to deal with the bigger problem of sin. When I've heard this passage preached before, Many times, I'll hear that the men, especially the paralytic, that they weren't expecting Jesus to say that. I think other people in the house didn't expect him to say that. But I think they knew exactly what Jesus was on about. How do I know that? Well, think of a scenario where these guys... They have this man in this mat, they bust a hole in the roof, they lower Jesus, or they lower the paralytic through the roof to see Jesus, and all he's thinking about is my paralysis, man, if I could just walk again, if I could just walk again, and when he looks at Jesus, he's just like, 
you're a healer guy. Heal me so I can run. Heal me so I can jump. Heal me so I can exercise and, and live life. And then when Jesus says, son, your sins are forgiven, in that scenario, this man would go, what? What sins? What are you talking about? I'm not a sinner. Let me tell you why we know that that wasn't the case. Here's how it really happened, and then I'll tell you how we know it. This man heard about this healing man, Jesus, but he has a hunch that he's not just a healing man. He already has a hunch that he, he's, he's heard about the casting out of demons. Maybe he caught wind of some of the stuff that the demons said. He's the Holy One of God before Jesus shut them up. Maybe he heard about the leper, and the leper saying, I don't know, he, he seemed to literally fulfill Isaiah's prophecies in me. Maybe he goes to synagogue and the scribes are saying, this guy thinks he's the Messiah. This guy must be a blasphemer. He knows there's something up besides just he has a, a miracle touch. And so when they lower the mat, everyone else sees a paralytic man, but the paralytic man knows that he has bigger issues than paralysis because when he gets in front of Jesus, he realizes he shouldn't be there. He's not worthy to be on a mat in front of Jesus. He's not worthy to bust through a roof and interrupt this man's sermon. And then when Jesus says, your sins are forgiven, he experiences the greatest relief in the world. And even if he didn't get healed, he would have had the relief that the bigger problem than paralysis is this profound sin that separates you from God, and I just unseparated you. Your problem isn't that you're separated from society, separated from sports, separated from exercise, separated from marriage and having kids. Those are big problems. But you know deep down in the bottom of your heart that your big problem is not separation from those things. It's separation from God. And I just lifted the barrier. He knows what Jesus is talking about. How do we know that? We know that because in the Bible, repentance always is a prerequisite for forgiveness. Show me one place in the Bible where God extends forgiveness, carte blanche, and the person's not even repentant. Doesn't happen. You might think, what about on the cross when Jesus says, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. Okay, that was Jesus' prayer request. Did God forgive them in the moment? Okay, never mind. Even though they're unrepentant, just wave a magic wand. They're all forgiven. Everyone who sacrificed Jesus, crucified Jesus is forgiven in that moment. We know that's not true because when Peter preaches his first sermon at Pentecost in Acts, he says, you crucified him. And they were cut to the heart, and they repented and said, what shall we do? He said, repent and believe and be baptized. That's when it happened. So God answered Jesus' prayer request, but Jesus wasn't waving a magic wand going, never mind, you don't have to repent, just forgiveness. That is unbiblical. So God, Jesus goes around preaching a message of good news that is repent and believe. Repent and believe. Not believe or not believe, doesn't matter. We'll just wave a wand of forgiveness. That's not the Bible. Why would Jesus do that here? Why would Jesus do that here? Why would it, just because he feels bad that he's a paralytic? And he suddenly just goes, never mind if you're repentant or not. Maybe one day you'll figure it out. I'll just forgive you now. Here's a certificate of Jesus' forgiveness. And he goes home and he's like, forgiveness. That's stupid. Is he forgiven? No. So that's clue number one. This man knew what was happening even though everybody else didn't. He knew what he was wrestling with in his heart and he sat there in front of Jesus he understood that there's something more about this man. He felt something about the weight of his guilt and his sin. This passage is paralleled in Matthew and in Luke. And when I took a look at Luke, 
Luke includes another phrase, another word. It's one word in the Greek, but he includes it that Mark and Luke leave out. Thanks, Matthew. When Jesus looks at the paralytic and heals him, he says, take heart, my son. Your sins are forgiven. Take heart. It could be translated, do not fear. That same phrase is repeatedly translated as, do not fear. Do not fear, my son. Your sins are forgiven. Do not fear what? Do not fear continued paralysis? No, because that's irrelevant to the sin. Do not fear, comma, your sins. Your sins are what's weighing on you. Your sins are what's stressing you out. Bigger than paralysis, if we want to get real about things, your separation from God is the big disaster in your life. I know that hurts you, and I know you're feeling the weight of it. I know your heart is penitent about all of that. And I'm lifting it for you. Take heart. It's a beautiful message of God understanding a repentant heart and meeting it where it is and not asking Him to prove Himself, not asking Him to to work it off in the synagogue and go to so many temple gatherings. Right there in the moment, like the thief on the cross, He recognizes His repentance and He gives it to Him. He gives the forgiveness to Him. No strings attached. That's grace and mercy. That without works, without earning it, the only prerequisite being a con- uh, the condition of a repentant heart, He gives it to Him. The only other place in Scripture where Jesus explicitly grants forgiveness is in Luke chapter 7. When the woman who was a sinner comes in and she starts washing and anointing his feet with what? A bucket of water? No, a bucket of tears. She's weeping in front of him, crying and using her hair to dry his feet, his nasty, crusty feet from walking around all day in the dusty streets. And then everyone sitting around the table is judging, oh, if you knew the kind of woman that was touching you, you wouldn't even let her touch you. Then he rebukes them for thinking that. For thinking it, same as here. He rebukes Simon for thinking it, and then he tells the woman, you're forgiven. Did she think that was irrelevant? Was she like, what are you talking about? I'm just washing your feet. What do you mean sins? That was exactly what she was crying about. The fact that society has labeled her as a sinner, and forget society, she knows that she has ultimately sinned against God and God alone, Psalm 54, one. Psalm 51.4. So just like in Luke 7, Jesus sees this repentant woman and he grants forgiveness. He's responding to the repentance with his grace of forgiveness. Same thing here. The only question left is how did Jesus know he was repentant if the man didn't say he was repentant? How did Jesus know what Simon was thinking about the woman washing his feet? How did Jesus know what the scribes were thinking in the room when he said, you're forgiven? And they didn't say out loud that they thought that was blasphemy. He perceived it. Mark is giving us all the clues that we need to recognize. He sees hearts. He reads hearts. Coming to Christ is not saying a magic prayer. You don't call a pastor to say, can I get the words exactly right? Because I need the, it's like abracadabra. I need to say the correct words and it's like a spell. You know, I, I read this incantation and it lifts in. It's not, that's... That's like voodoo or something. That's not, that's not the gospel. Jesus reads hearts. 
If your heart is repentant, he grants forgiveness. Place your faith in Christ. How do we know they placed their faith in Christ? Well, they at least had that because the text tells us in verse 5, after they did all their work of busting up the roof and lowering their friend, Jesus saw their faith and said to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven. So it's not without faith, but faith is there. Not works, but faith. That this man is something more than just a man. That he can do something about not just my physical paralysis, but about my spiritual paralysis and how numb I feel toward God. And I know I'm supposed to do good things, but I don't feel like doing good things. I feel like a spiritual paralytic. And Jesus heals that problem first. That's amazing. It's only by His grace and it's only by His mercy that He does it. So, we come to Christ maybe out of desperation, maybe out of a longing for Him because life has shipwrecked you. Something is going on in your life and it's caused you, it's prompted you to come to church. That's okay. There's no shame in that. Maybe you should have come sooner. Maybe you should have come to Him first. There's a lot of should-haves that all of us carry around. It's called sin. And Jesus doesn't receive you by going, no, 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 no. Go back out there and at least do a year of feeding the poor and living your life cuss-free and only watching PG movies and then come back and then we'll talk. That's at least a baseline. We can start there. Throw out all your secular CDs, then we can talk. He doesn't ask you to clean things up and then come. He uses the desperation in your life to get you to come. But then when you come... He does a switch on you, like he did for this man. You know that your problem is not the problem that you're thinking about. Your problem is your distance from me. And I'm going to close that distance through forgiveness. And we can trust that. We can trust Christ's authority to forgive sins. Because he's God. And he has the authority to grant it. If any of you are in here this morning and you're still at that place where you're guarded, things are beating you up in life, but you're just not at that place where you're ready to embrace the forgiveness that God has. Some of it might be, it can't be that easy. It can't be that easy. You can't just come to God and go, God, I'm, I repent of all of this junk. I repent of all of this stuff in my past. I repent of all of that. And I know I can't do anything to fix it. I can't do anything to go back in time and change it. I can't do anything to heal every single wound that I cause in other people and in myself. And ultimately, the wounds that I've caused against God's heart. I can't fix that. I repent of that. And then, I'm forgiven. The weight is completely gone. The, The weight is completely off. Just like that. Family, that's why the healing of the paralytic is such a beautiful picture right next to that truth. Because the guy didn't have to go to physical therapy. He didn't say, pick up your walk and limp over to the physical therapy unit over at the hospital. Go home. Go home and do what? Go home and do anything that a fully healed, fully functioning man would be able to do. Because it is just like that. It's salvation completely by grace. If you're in here this morning, there is no need to carry around the chains of past sins 
If we do, we doubt Christ's authority to fully forgive. But if we embrace his authority to fully forgive, we realize those chains have been severed, cut, broken, and we're free to live lives under God's grace now. Let's pray. Father, we come before you in confession that we all have stains and blotches on our garments from our behavior and our thoughts, our waywardness, our rebellion. God, we come before you and we lay those things at your feet and we trust in the gospel. We trust in the truth that because Jesus bore our sins on the cross, took it to death and put death to death, by coming out of the grave alive, that our garments are no longer filthy, that there is no longer any stain or blotch or iniquity or transgression, but that instead we've been cleansed and made righteous because you are faithful and just to do that when we confess Christ. So Lord, we claim and cling to that authority of Jesus' name for the forgiveness of all of our sins. Help us to not wallow in it. Help us to not make excuses for ourselves by being stuck in it, but to advance, to move forward, to pick up our mat and start walking in the Spirit and not living back there like the old man. So in this newness of life, grow us, edify us, make us mature, and build up inside our hearts a gratitude for your full and not partial Forgiveness. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.